Well, hello and a very warm welcome. Uh, my name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral and it's my pleasure not only to welcome you today but also to chair today's uh, Sunday Forum. And I'm delighted to say that uh, back by popular demand uh, is Esther Duval. Uh, it was very good to have Esther with us last year and hear about Benedictine spirituality and today she's here to introduce us to Celtic spirituality, the second edition of her book, The Celtic Way of Prayer, The Recovery of the Religious Imagination, uh, was published in 2010 and will be uh, available for sale after uh, this event. Esther, of course, will be well known to most of you, an author of uh, several books which have been extremely influential in their ability to shape individual spiritual journeys as well as recall them always to the roots, often of course radical roots, that traditions of Christian spirituality have. She's a leading scholar of Celtic traditions and her work has reminded us of the ways, for instance, that Celtic heritage shaped Anglican Christianity. And her work also reminds us of the lessons we can take from these traditions and apply to our spiritual practice today. Personally, what I always love about Esther's books is that she provides a lot of fascinating information, but in such a way that brings that information back to the business of human formation, who we are becoming, how our spiritual lives translate into our practical uh, daily lives. I'm really delighted she's here with us and know that she will help us recover our religious imagination by introducing us today to the Celtic way of prayer. Would you please welcome Esther Duvall. I can think of nothing better than finding myself in um, St Paul's on Campbell Mass. I heard the um, sermon by Mark Oakley, and much as I love my own rural churches in Herefordshire, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else except the Welsh borders. It is rather glorious not to have eight people, or perhaps a half if you count a dog in the porch, um, and the fullness and riches of Candlemas in St Paul's. It's almost impossible to talk in the 45 minutes that is allotted to me about that great topic of the Celtic tradition, the Celtic world, the Celtic church. So I'm going to take us on a very short walk. The year is 1984 and it is spring. I find myself in Kentucky. I am in the company of one of those great, splendid old women that only grow in America. She is immensely wealthy. She is high-minded. She married into the Utopian family of the Owens. And she is a benefactor to Gethsemane, the Trappist monastery where Thomas Merton, that memorable saint, was a monk for so many years. She is a friend of Patrick Hart. It's a Saturday, and we are walking through the woods to visit Thomas Merton's hermitage 
in um, the woods. He, of course, died in 1968, but that hermitage is still a refuge where members of his community go and have time of solitude and silence. Patrick Hart, Merton's old friend, strides ahead and makes for the fridge, hoping that the last mug had left some cold beer. My eyes, however, are riveted by the fact that as soon as I get into the hermitage, there is Merton's desk, and above the shelf of his desk are still some of his favorite books. And amongst them, I recognize immediately a small, rather faded, blue volume. I know it only too well. It is a book by Nora Chadwick, the greatest, if you like, of pioneering Celtic academic studies. The Age of the Saints in the Early Celtic Church by Nora Chadwick, written in 1961. Now, how did that come to be there? Why was that part of Merton's chosen reading in those last years of um, his life? It brings back memories to me of Nora Chadwick. And I explored the friendship and the correspondence that had grown between Thomas Burton and Nora Chadwick. I remember her so well because I lived for a year in her house at Cambridge when I was doing research. Sadly, before I had discovered the Celtic tradition, I was doing something extremely boring on 18th century local government. But the, <laughs> the Celtic presence was there a Welsh harp at every bend of the stairs, getting better and better as you went upstairs. And here was the woman whose single-minded devotion to the Celtic world was rather paralleled by her sister who joined um, the Carmelites. Merton stumbled on a book of hers, and they began to um, correspond. This was the best possible introduction that anyone could have and that anyone could still have to the Celtic tradition. This is a fellow of Newnham saying of her, she had a wonderful way of penetrating into the spirit of the past as if she were really living it, not to judge, but to understand it in a spirit of reverence and um, humility. Merton was enthralled, but then the timing was so right. He was himself living in silence and solitude, the hermit life that he had always dreamt of. Moreover, he was, in these last years of his life, rediscovering the importance of his own Celtic identity, of his Welsh heritage. His mother had been born in Cardiff, and through the, um, his ancestry, which I was able to trace, his roots went back into West Wales. And he was finding that so much about the Celtic tradition 
really answered what he himself was discovering, or if you like, um, uncovering. And he exclaims to Nora Chadwick, a new world that has waited until this time to open up. I love that phrase, a new world that has waited until this time to open up. All of us, I think, like Merton, take new chapters in our life, uncover or rediscover um, our identity, and this Celtic world is one that will open up to us as we ask questions of it. And I think it's very important, and that is why I'm beginning with Nora Chadwick. I'm making her my guiding star, that the questions that we asked are asked with reverence and humility, and are not facile questions, not questions that come, because if you like the Celtic tiger, the extraordinary enthusiasm for Celtic spirituality, sometimes I think taken us down wrong paths, has sometimes blurred um, our judgment. And I want this morning to go back to the origins and the very fine uh, tradition that the Celtic can um, open up for um, us. What by reading Nora Chadwick, does Thomas Merton discover about the Celtic world in its context? First of all, it is essentially monastic. Patrick Barry, who was the abbot of Ampleforth, in, when we were celebrating Augustine arriving in um, Canterbury in 987, said we should never forget that it is through the monastic tradition, whether Benedictine or Celtic, that the good news of Christianity arrived in this country. Two monastic traditions alongside one another, but with a slightly different emphasis. The story of the Celtic origins is so fascinating. Essentially, a great deal of influence comes from Egypt. By sea, waterways are a good way to travel. The emphasis of the Egyptian desert. That is why on the Celtic High Cross is so often so unexpected that in remote corners of Ireland or um, of Wales you see Antony of Egypt and Paul of Thieves the earliest desert fathers presiding over um, the Celtic uh, church. The emphasis on the solitary, the emphasis on the desert. Still in Wales there are place names, Dysert, Dysert. These were the places that were the deserts. Not deserts of sand, but deserts of deep forest, deserts of remote places, deserts of islands where the hermit can live, praise God, and above all, discover 
the personal relationship with God, which is essential to any of us in whatever circumstances we may be. Learning to live with oneself, learning about the desert of um, the heart. And it led to what Nora Chadwick praises as one of the particular gifts of the Celtic world, and that is its abundant flowering of a special class of poetry. For those of us who today are aware that there are no better words for theology than poetry, for those of us who come from Wales and who know that in Wales they say, if you're looking for religion, ask the poets. Well, here we have quite extraordinary flowering in these earlier centuries, 8th, 9th, and 10th century, of quite lyrical um, expressions. Listen to this hermit prayer, which comes from the 10th century. O son of the living God, old eternal king, I desire a hidden hut in the wilderness, that it may be my home, a narrow little blue stream beside it, and a clear pool, a lovely wood close by it on every side, to nurse birds with all sorts of voices. That could only be written by somebody who is living close to nature, couldn't it, that lovely phrase? To nurse birds with all sorts of voices and to hide them in its shelter. And then here, it's tempting to read more and more. But here is an imagined conversation between an Irish hermit and his brother. His brother is a prince living in luxury with bright colours and all the comforts of um, a court. And he says, I have a hut in a wood. Only my lord knows it. An ash tree closes it on one side and a hazel like a great tree on the other. The size of my hut's small, a homestead with familiar paths, a tree of apples of great bounty, fair white birds come, heron seagulls, the sea sings to them. And then he said, I am content with that which is given to me by um, my gentle Christ. The words, the um, poetry by these hermits, who are seen as saints. There are 700 saints in Wales, more or less all of them with unpronounceable names. <laughs> they haven't gone through the process of canonization. They are acclaimed by the neighborhood who know that a praying presence can change the land around it whose influence is in many ways still there. The holy wells, which brought them to that place, have now in many cases been 
rediscovered in recent years. So I think of Pottershire and I think of how I knew it in my childhood. It was just a pool. Now people come and they leave their offerings, prayer flags or um, crosses woven of twigs. There is something here that um, is timeless, that speaks to our need for holy places, for what the stream says about the role of water in our lives, about the importance of healing, about the importance of um, praying for other people. These saints are very immediate still in our lives and in our memories. And I love the phrase that Patrick Hart, friend of Thomas Merton, used, the reality of the Celtic saints. Nothing remote um, about them. Nothing remote about them because the Celtic tradition comes and it is very much influenced by its society. Um, Benedictine um, monastic tradition is going to be influenced by everything that is inherited from um, Roman organization and order. The Celtic world was that of kinship, of relationship, a sense of connectedness, of interconnectedness, not only between human beings in the great relationship of humanity relating to one another, but the non-human as um, well. And these saints have a great sense of awareness. And it is so fascinating that today, as we are becoming increasingly aware of our um, responsibility, our stewardship towards the earth, we are also saying that it is important not to approach it, as it were, from um, above, but to say that we receive from the earth, and we receive from earth's creatures, and there is a give and take that we get in um, the relationships between the saints and the animals, a relationship of friendship. And again, how central to all um, our lives must be the relationship of friendship and of kinship. So here is um, St. Kevin. And St. Kevin is in Glenelg. And he has a small stone bothy beside the lake at Glendalough. And it's Lent, and he's praying with his cupped hands like this outside of the small window in his stone bothy. And a blackbird comes, and she lays her egg in his hands. And without moving his hands, in order not to disturb this fragile egg, he goes on praying until the egg is hatched. And there, in that simple story, there's all the symbolism of um, the egg and the promise of a new life and the care and the um, tenderness that Kevin shows 
in this giftedness that comes into those open, gentle, waiting hands. And now we move to Northumbria. We move to um, Lindisfarne. And um, we move to um, St. Cuthbert. St. Cuthbert in the North Sea, going out to pray in the stinging cold of the North Sea. And as he comes back to the shore, so Bede tells us, small sea otters come and they rub his ankles and warm him as he stands there frozen by um, the North Sea. And we could stop there. And it is the most delightful story of a saint being warmed by these cosy furry animals. <coughs> or we could, as Bede does, put the lens of the scriptures over it and see that here we have a glimpse of an epiphany. Here we have a glimpse of a revelation and that in that figure of Cuthbert, here is the right relationship of um, the world um, restored. It is a moment of um, transfiguration, the second Adam in whom the true order of creation is restored. These stories, this poetry, Nora Chadwick in her book says, and this would appeal so much to Thomas Merton, if any of you um, know him. In Celtic hands, we are watching the substitution of the pen for the sword. Here we are seeing the mind can achieve more than military strength. The Celtic gospel of Christ, with what audacity did they actually send pilgrims, evangelists, into Europe to bring the light of Christ to Europe? But it was never ever with the sword that they sought to conquer. It was always carrying the book high or an icon or um, a simple cross. They believed that the word, the spoken and lived out word, is enough and stronger than um, anything else. She also talks, and this again is one of her phrases, contemplation of their austerity their unworldliness and their spiritual happiness is an inspiration to um, our present age. They understood the role of 
symbol and image in their storytelling and in their poetry and in their written word. But they also knew that the visual is very powerful in its own right. And the particularly and peculiar contribution of the Celtic world, with the one exception of the Armenian high crosses, but I mustn't go down um, that fascinating um, uh, diversion. Um, the Celtic High Cross is unique in the history of Christianity. It is itself a statement in stone of all the profound Christian belief. Let me try to draw it so um, that you um, see it in your um, imagination. Three very firm and heavy stone slabs anchor each of the crosses. We begin there with a statement about, if you like, a mausoleum, about death, about the skull um, of um, Adam being at the, underneath the place of the resurrection. Then we are drawn up through the tree of life. And at the moment where the arms cross, there is a great circle, a circle that is entirely distinctive, the circle and the cross held in tension together. And then at the top there is the capstone. And again, we have to read um, what this is saying. The capstone represents Church of the Resurrection, which Queen Helena built in Jerusalem. So there is a statement of the resurrection. And we are carried by the tree of life with a succession of carved panels, which show us God at work redeeming his world, God at work saving his people, God at work leading each of us from death through, and there are panels with which we can all um, identify, Daniel in the lion's den. Think of what that might mean in your own life. The three children in the burning fiery furnace who are yet trying to praise God. All these scenes of internal uh, um, danger, and yet God brings us through. And these great arms on either side are carry underneath um, the hands of God. And what does that mean, the central circle? So many theories about it. Does it derive from the droids? Is it the rising sun? Is it on and on we go, the cosmos? The significant thing is that there is, if you like, the circle of the world, the cosmos, and it is held in tension with the cross. And at the heart of it all, at that central meeting phase, 
there is always the crucified Christ. Not the crucified Christ of medieval party, the suffering Christ, a body um, tortured and suffering, but the Christ who speaks to early people, as is also true in Africa, Christus Victor, the triumphant Christ, the Christ who on our behalf has overcome the powers of darkness and set us free. Sometimes in a way that only imagery can do, that crucified Christ will also be wearing the long white robe of the risen Christ. So that death and life are brought together. But what is one of the facile aberrations that has developed with Celtic enthusiasm is so many people now say, oh, Celtic tradition, it's creation-centered. It is not. At the center of the Celtic tradition, there is the crucified Christ. There is the Paschal mystery. It's full, if you like, the circle is the fullness of creation, but it is a travesty to remove from the center that triumphant Christus Victor. And I know how powerful that can be because there was a memorable time when I was in um, Zimbabwe, one of those oases of prayer and hope in that suffering country. The mass was in Shona, but somebody told me what to expect, and that is that at the moment of the elevation of the host, people would begin clapping because they were performing the age-old African ritual of welcoming in the figure of Christ the hero who comes to rescue people from the darkness, and only in Africa can you know um, the darkness of the spirit of the darkness, I mean, of the um, threatening evil spirits. So how magnificent, how um, magnificent um, that is and how important it is to hold things together. Time and time again, we must say, just as Benedict knows that at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of his own monastic rule there is paradox, so in the Celtic, and let me just read this, at the heart of the human experience lies neither consistency nor chaos, but dynamic contradiction, holding two things together. So, the visual, and not least, not least the visual expressed in the illuminated, let's say, the Book of Kells or um, the Book um, of, of the Lindisfarne Gospels. Again, to quote Nora Chadwick, it was a period of special beauty, of lasting beauty. This time, last year ago, I was struggling um, to write a lecture for America 
And I was going to talk about the St. John's Bible, which some of you may have come across, which is this extraordinary enterprise um, by the largest Benedictine community in America to commission the rewriting of the Bible in the best calligraphy and with the best contemporary um, illustrations that you can have. And I went to Dublin to look again at the Book of Kells and to stand enraptured in front of it, remembering what Geraldus Cambrinsus had said, wonder upon wonder and wonder. And as I were faced by this extraordinary contemporary St. John's Bible and faced by the Book of Kells, I found that there was only one phase that I could really find expressed my experience in front of these, and that was exuberant energy. And I thought, and again, um, this is something that I feel so strongly about. Um, we've made Christianity so pallid and so um, accessible. Wouldn't it be good if we recovered through thinking about um, the Celtic tradition, something of the exuberance and the energy that they found was the only appropriate way to express um, the feeling that the gospel and gospel um, life should bring. And the Lindisfarne Gospels, when I came to look at them, how um, extraordinary they were, but also how very, very um, significant. Because if you study them, you realize, and this is so important because it brings you back to the theme of holding um, uh, together, it brings back the influence of the English and the Irish and the Roman and the Coptic and the um, Byzantine, all these artistic influences, all these connections, all these threads that flow into the Celtic church are woven by the scribes of the monastery at Lindisfarne into one glorious and harmonious whole a visual statement of the unification of the various strands of Christian orthodoxy lived by the Celtic Church of that time, consciously stating a unified position beyond diversified elements. This openness of the Celtic Church, and I've been so upset by the way in which sometimes the Celtic Church is taken to be separate from um, the rest. All sorts of expectations, particularly in America, have been put on the Celtic Church by feminists, by people who are um, uh, looking for um, ecological statements and so on. How shocking that would have been to um, St. Columbanus. He is traveling through um, Gaul. Think of the audacity of it, so on far with the love of Christ, that he is entering Europe, already Christian, to um, once again awaken souls and hearts 
to the shining light of Christ. And to a bishop who questions him, he replies in words that I think are prophetic. Let Gaul contain us side by side as the kingdom of heaven shall contain. The Celtic Church loved Rome. The Celtic Church was part of the whole entirety of Christendom of its day. But then we should remember that the first, the Church of the First Millennium recognized unity and diversity. If the Celtic Church was different, it was different for racial, for geographical, um, for economic reasons. But in its belief, it was one with the orthodoxy of the whole of Christendom at that time. And so I believe that not only is um, our recovery of the true Celtic tradition, going back to the serious commitment that Nora Chadwick made to really understand that world and to enter into it with reverence and humility. We find that it works at many, many levels, but I believe quite passionately that there is something here which is radical and prophetic and that we should recover this sense of um, unity and um, diversity. So let me read what Nora Chadwick tells us. The Celtic Church was never outside the framework of the Roman um, Church. It was in all respects at one with the established um, Church at this time. Um, they held um, the same faith, was founded on the same tradition, had the same hope of the resurrection. It was completely orthodox. Then she goes on to talk about its being remote and it suffered from irregular contact uh, with the centre and there was a time lag in ideas travelling. We make allowance for that. We make allowance for um, diversity, but we rejoice in unity and uh, diversity. And anything that can in any way increase the tragic polarization of our world at the moment in the churches and um, in politics, in worldwide politics, then we need to, I do believe, go back to putting the Celtic Church into its um, true perspective and seeing that here we have something that is going to be um, a source um, of, I think I have to say, a light on this um, Candlemas Day.